Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. I am Elaine miller Karras, and I'm so grateful today to have Dr. Michael Sapp, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Trauma Resource Institute with me today. And we're going to be doing a little bit of a different format because I have some exciting news to share with my audience, and that is my second edition of my book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, the Trauma and Community Resiliency Model, published by Rutledge, um, is coming out on March 14th. And you can actually get a copy, even you can pre-order a copy at rutledge.com. And uh, and it can be waiting for you. Who knows? In a, in a couple of weeks, it will come to your, it, to your, uh, in through your mail. So um, Dr. Sapp is going to um, interview me today about the book. And this is actually um, show one of two shows. He's going to come back on March 13th, and I'm going to interview him because the book is designed, it has, it has 15 chapters, and the book is, uh, has many co-authors. And Michael co-authored the chapter on neuroscience, and so he'll be talking more about the neuroscience of the models, the community resiliency model, and the trauma resiliency model, and the importance for us to bring the body into the equation. So, Michael, welcome. I'm going to invite you to do your introduction. I know you. we prepared some questions to ask me today, and we will hopefully have a nice dialogue. Absolutely. We're going to flip the script today and then yes. flip it back next time. A little uh, bit, yes. But yes, yeah, so my name is Michael Sapp. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist by trade, the CEO of the Trauma Resource Institute, and uh, have been... My goodness, I've known you, Elaine, since before. I don't even know what year. We just, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, we were in private practice down the hall from each other. And that's how I originally met you. Uh, And then I came to a training back in 2010 in the trauma resiliency model, which we'll talk about a little bit later, uh, and have uh, been following you around ever since. Well, I kind of say that, you know, you're, uh, you don't know the fate of you having be my next door neighbor. And I uh, influenced you with my ideas about neuroscience and the embodiment of trauma and how we might be able to help people heal in a, a significant way when we added the portal of the body to the equation of not only what someone feels or thinks about what happened to them, but what do they sense? And if if trauma is in the body, which I know we both believe, yeah. how can we help them to release the sensations connected to their traumatic experience so they can be living more fully in this present moment in mind, body, and spirit? Yes. Well, and I wonder if that might be a wonderful lead-in to my first question. Now, I, I will want to read eventually a, a brief, uh, an overview of the book, a description of the book. But even before then, I'm just kind of curious if I can ask you what um, what prompted you? Because, I, again, what you just said seems apropos for this question. What prompted you to write Building Resilience to Trauma in the first well, place? 
I have to say, I think I was pretty passionate about the work that that we were doing at the time. And I met this wonderful publisher at the Psychotherapy Networker Conference, Anna Moore. And, you know, she said to us, she goes, I really think you need to write a book about this. And I was so excited. I never thought really about that I was going to write a book book that could be published by such a wonderful publisher as Rutledge. And um, and so it was then, oh, of course, we're doing so much in the world and we need to get the message out about how this is going to, how it not only affects people, but how people could read about what we were doing in the world and possibly replicate some of the, I think, systems change that has resulted from bringing this model and both models into the international world. So I think there was there was something inside of me that was truly passionate. And, you know, sometimes when you create something, not like the book and like the Trauma Resource Institute, sometimes I think it's more of a, <laughs> a calling than, oh, I chose this because I really do think it was inspired by so many things beyond my, beyond me to bring the ideas in the book forward. And so it's been quite an amazing journey. It's been a humbling, a humbling journey. It's been difficult at times, as you know, and it's also been amazing and exhilarating at times to see the um, effect of our work on not only individuals, but families and communities um, so it's been awe-inspiring. So I had to write the book. It was it was in my it was I had a fire to write this book. I have to say. And so you did. And the first edition uh, was published back in March of 2015, which is interesting because the second edition is coming out on March uh, 2023. This is uh, <laughs> yes. my goodness eight. Eight years, eight ago? years ago, eight years ago, and I think the the thing that was so amazing to me about writing the book was I had no idea that when you wrote a book, well, first of all, that people actually read it, which they did. <laughs> but people would actually, yeah, people you know, it, right? that's how books are written for, but you just never know. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. But that it ha- that it had a power of its own, and I sometimes thought of the first edition of Building Resiliency to Trauma is like another child because I, things would happen and I would learn about it as I, as I traveled the world about people reading it. I remember I was in, I was in, um, I was in Mexico in Pueblo, Mexico, and I was speaking at a conference and I was, I was just walking with some others and I had done a presentation and this young man literally runs towards me and he, and he like embraces me and picks me up. It was a little bit like, uh, oh, what's this about? He goes, you're Elaine. And I said, yeah, I'm Elaine. You know, nice to meet you. What is your name? He says, I read your book and it changed my life. And I thought, oh my. And I mean, I had a little conversation with him, but some of the things that happened were kind of unexpected. You know, I didn't think someone would kind of reach me in that way and embrace me in such a sweet embrace. And I'm such a huggy person anyway, that I wasn't offended by the embrace, but it was, it was so kind and, and sweet. But I think um, I think one of the things that that struck me, uh, you and I were in London many years ago, and there was a young a young person, younger than me, um, and if she listens to that, she's going to smile, uh, Leslie Carroll. And Leslie Carroll is a Presbyterian minister, and she came to this training that we had done on the trauma <clears throat> resiliency model in London. And, you know, I didn't I didn't know her, and yet she told me later I was to learn that she was, you know, going through some struggles as many of us do in this world. And she read the book and it was something that empowered her. And then Leslie Carroll would embrace the community resiliency model in a way that was so um, 
um, I don't know, I was so humbled by her because she's such an extraordinary woman in her own right and has done so much to um, be a beacon of healing in Northern Ireland as a result of the troubles and the conflict that they had there. And so I went to Northern Ireland and and I met so many of the wonderful um, Irish there who have, many of whom embrace the community resiliency model. And there's even, you know, people in the government that are embracing the community resiliency model. So I just, I think, gosh, if I wouldn't have written the book Leslie wouldn't have read the book and we wouldn't have had this relationship personally. We do have a, she's a dear friend now, but also professionally for both of us, it has brought these ideas that are in the book to the wider community. And I, I didn't know that was going to happen. And so I feel so grateful that, you know, again, eight years ago, the book was written and so many people around the world have read the book and have written to me and, have called out to me and has called and has called out, as you know, to the Trauma Resource Institute to say, we want you to come. Could you come and do a training? And, you know, at the times before COVID, uh, we, you and I traveled many places together, um, Nepal, um, the Philippines, Turkey, Turkey, uh, many places where we brought the model forward so that people could, uh, really use the wellness skills of both the community resiliency model and the trauma resiliency model, not only for their own well-being, but to share them with others. And it has been quite a uh, humbling experience to do that. Well, and it's interesting as you're talking, I was thinking, you know, the, yes, the original question is what helped, why did you write the books? And, and it's, it's so interesting because the, the models for so many years we have been witness to how how effective, how um, life-changing these models can be. I can only speak for my own personal experience, right? As a clinician, when I learned these skills and this model, especially uh, the, the trauma resiliency model early on, to see how it transformed my practice, my private practice, to see how it transformed uh, the lives of the people that I was working with as a clinician, but also my own life being able to use the same skills of wellness for my own self-care to see my levels of burnout significantly decrease that, you know, it was, Oh my goodness. Yes. These models work. I, I know they work. And then for you to write the book, like you said, it, it enabled these models to go from a, a, a pretty localized um, witnessing of their effectiveness to a, really a global uh, not that they weren't already global, because you had ar- we'd already done work internationally. But it, like you said, it 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 opened up uh, the model to maybe people that wouldn't otherwise have been able to hear about it in this way. Um, well, yeah, and I think the other thing I want people to know about the book is that the book, um, you know, has been inspired, I think, by the work that we were have been doing around the world. But I right. have many collaborators in the book, so you and I have collaborated on, on a chapter about neuroscience. Um, my own daughter, Jessica Karras Watterson, we've done one on addiction. Um, we have an amazing research team of Suzanne Montgomery, Kim Freeman, and Lindy Grabby. That chapter 15 is about what they have learned being consummate, really, researchers at major academic centers, which we didn't have when the first book was uh, published. Um, that Dr. Bev Buckles also has contributed to both books. And she actually, I, I always thank her so much because she saw the value 
in the work that we were doing because she uh, created a trauma team from Loma Linda University that is connected to the Adventist Disaster Relief Agency called ADRA International. And she started using the model before we had any of the clinical evidence because she saw the evidence with her eyes when she taught these wellness skills to people who were suffering. And I, you know, I think that one of the, one of the, the, I, I think the most um, humbling experience has been our work with the Ukrainians. And, you know, since February 25th, when our work with the Ukrainians began, I just felt like an opening to a more significant part of our purpose since co-founding Try and writing the first edition of the book. I think that I've, I've experienced kind of this very deep connection to this universal presence of compassion and empathy and the deep well of suffering experienced um, in war, but also with all the storms of life that we all experience in this world, whether we're experiencing the great tragedy of war or not. But I think it's almost imbued me with a greater purpose to share the work we're doing and to create you know, new systems to prevent mental illness and provide support to those who suffer. And I think that's been one of the, the beacons for me of what keeps me you know, going. And I think that I certainly learned a lot about responding to disasters, but I, but I didn't always know that the work that we were creating would also be so important for prevention. Yeah. And now like we have a chapter in the book that's about public health and about right. um, thinking about you know, primary, secondary, tertiary uh, prevention and how to integrate the skills into organizations like we've seen in many communities like uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, um, who have now integrated these skills into so many different um, parts of their community. And they're not the only one. There's school systems, there's, you know, organizations um, that have this now what we call a, a well-being lens that's also called resiliency for many individuals, even though we know that resiliency can be um, a difficult world, word for some, it's still a word that I like, and especially if we describe it in the way that we do, yeah. which is not only about um, embodied well-being, but it's also how we come forward in the world, again, with that compassion and empathy, and not forgetting our history, that we can lean into the suffering of our historical past, our personal past, but I guess the whole idea is that we don't have to we don't have to stay there. That we can say, yes, this happened to me, and I don't want to ever forget. But then what else can be true? And I think the book has really has really brought that forward about what else is true. Well, and and I think the book in general, and it, it might be helpful if I spend a, a little bit of time just even describing the the general dis- or providing a general description of the book. But I wanted to highlight that you know, and you've already uh, touched on this already, is that uh, we see how important these skills are in community. We see how important healing is in community, and how much community is involved in healing and uh, and working with others. And I, I think I appreciate that what I appreciate about the book is that that it is collaborative, that you have made an effort to uh, pull in other voices because that's the model, you know, and that's how it you've is. that's how you've helped create the models, both models to be and and what I think contributes to their effectiveness. Well, and I think that's why, you know, I think about Jan Click, 
who is a licensed clinical social worker who worked for the Veterans Administration for over 30 years and has dedicated her life to veterans and to healing trauma. And she's a co-author on the chapter that we talk about on working with the military. Yeah. And then Jennifer Burton, you know, both both of these wonderful women have been with me almost since the beginning. I think, well, actually, Jennifer and Jan, I met before I even started Try, but Jennifer has been works. She is an amazing therapist and has worked very diligently uh, in the area of attachment. And we have a wonderful chapter, I think, on attachment theory. Um, and then, you know, and then we met, you know, we met Jen Wallace. What a little spark plug. She is a spark plug. That's a great, that's a great, that's a great, yes. Well, and I think that especially at a time when there is so much suffering um, in terms of sometimes the images we see of what I think can be called systemic racism that can exist within police departments, to see someone who's connected with the police commission in Washington state that wants to create a trauma-informed and resiliency-informed focus program to mitigate and reduce the suffering of people who've been sexually assaulted and to train people in law enforcement about how to come forward with that lens. And they have an, a very good program up there in Washington state. And, you know, and actually she's the only one that I think that has the sole authorship of one of the chapters because she describes what they did that could be replicated to really, I think, make some systemic change yeah. in police departments all over the world. So, you know, I, I so appreciate uh, her work and the work that she's she's done with us. And, and I can't, you know, not mention, you know, Susan Reedy and Kim Freeman. Um, both women are so wonderful. Kim is a is a not only a social worker and on faculty, tenured faculty at Loma Linda, um, she's a social worker and a child psychologist. And Susan Reedy, I call her the Pied Piper for children, you're right, and parents, because she has a way of being able to be present with children and with adults. And so we have two wonderful chapters that are now dedicated to, um, actually Kim has another chapter um, that's dedicated to children and also with the art of how we bring it to children that the three of us wrote together. So, I mean, think about that. So much collaboration because the book is not only my ideas, but they're the ideas of all of us who've been working so hard together. So it really is a we book, <laughs> not, a, um, not a small book, by the way. It's over 300 pages, but it is a, it is a collaborative book. Not we in the uh, Northern Ireland sense of right. the word. That's uh, right. Small, it is, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a we collaborative book. Well, and also, as you mentioned that too, I was so proud of them when we did a, um, on our work with the Ukrainians, there was a group of, of, of individuals that were working with pregnant women who, of course, how hard to be pregnant and being in war. And so they, we had dedicated meetings with them. And I'm, I was thinking about that day and looking at who was in the Zoom room with us. And we had literally representatives from so many different countries that were community resiliency model teachers that showed up to provide support. Yeah. It wasn't only in the United States. It was yeah. people literally from around the world. Yeah. You know, India, Northern Ireland, um, um, many parts of the U.S., they're supporting um, Ukrainians and women who are about to give birth and dealing with the trauma of war. Yeah. Well, I know we're going to be uh, going to break here soon, and we'll come back and talk a little bit more in depth about the book. Uh, I'm just curious if there's anything else 
that you would want to to talk about as far as the models? Because this is what's what's interesting about the book is it's not only that we want to talk about the book, but the book is is about the models, uh, the trauma resiliency model and the community resiliency model. I'm wondering if if now would be a good time to just kind of describe maybe what's the difference between the two models before we go into break, and then we can come out and talk a little bit more about how that informs the book. Okay, I think that would be great. Well, first of all, the trauma resiliency model came before the community resiliency model, and it was really more directed towards mental health professionals. And also, it was very directed in the beginning towards working with disaster relief. And so when um, we started going into different countries, and I always have to say, I think about Haiti, and the wonderful people that I met in Haiti, but also the people that I met in San Bernardino County, um, people that um, when I was a teacher of family medicine and people would come into our mental health clinic and seeing some of the same struggles with, um, oh my goodness, with trauma and how trauma manifested in every domain of our existence, what we thought, what we felt, what we experienced physically in our body, you know, our spiritual perceptions, our behaviors, our relationships, and thinking there has to be a way that we bring you know, the ideas that were in the trauma resiliency model into the community in a way that's more accessible. So the community resiliency model actually evolved that we didn't need to teach the same in the same way. And also who was the target population of who we wanted to train as teachers. And so it became very clear to me in going to countries like Haiti, who just did not have a plethora of therapists, is that, oh my, the, the natural leaders in Haiti were so inspiring. These were people that had skills, that had skills that they developed through their lived experience. And what if we would give them additional skills that would come out of neuroscience that they could also integrate into the beautiful um, way they were with their population already? And so, and then that started, I started thinking about that in all the different countries that we went to, in the Philippines, um, in Turkey, um, in China. And so, that the community resiliency model actually took six of the skills of the trauma resiliency model and focused on bringing those wellness skills as a wellness practice to the world community that could be trained by natural leaders that did not necessarily have to be mental health professionals, although many mental health professionals have in fact become, um, have become um, community resiliency model teachers. So um, when I, as I say that, um, I think it's really interesting too about the crossover of how that that has happened um, and how exciting that is that we have mental health providers and natural leaders together working as, together work, as they work together yeah. to think about ideas of how to improve their communities. And I, one of the pro projects I'm also really proud of is LA County Mental Health. And we've trained over, I think, 150 community resiliency model teachers in Los Angeles County, and many of them are what you'd call peer advocates. They're from the community, they go into the community, and I just spoke at their um, their conference. I was one of the, I was a keynote speaker, and I was I led a discussion of people that had brought them in different ways. We had one person who was monolingual Spanish speaking and talking how she uses the skill for herself and how she brings it out into the um, into her community. Is that not exciting, Mike, to see that difference? So I know we need to take a, a little bit of a break and maybe I can continue about this discussion after the break and talk a little bit more about that. Um, and uh, so why don't we take um, why don't we take our break now? And then when we come back, I can talk a little bit more about the differences. Absolutely. 
So we'll be back in, in, in just a couple minutes, um, and we'll hear from our sponsor, the Trauma Resource Institute that Mike just happens to be the CEO of, um, yes, as we're on the break, and we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about the book. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Elaine miller Karras book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Elaine miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm here with Michael Sapp who is the CEO of the Trauma Resource Institute. And we've been, he's been interviewing me about my book that's going to be, pub, what's actually going to be released on March 14th, 2023. So um, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the components of the book. And uh, I think right before the break, I was talking about the difference between the trauma resiliency model and the community resiliency model. So yeah. maybe, Mike, I should say a little bit more about that. Please. 
Yep. And I mean, because when you first met me, we really just only had the trauma resiliency model and the community resi- resiliency model came from that. But let me tell you more of the differences. So Absolutely. the trauma resiliency model has nine skills that we teach uh, primarily mental health professionals. Sometimes we get people that are involved in coaching as well as sometimes body workers might come in to learn some of the skills because they found that we've given a language to some of the work that they're doing that can be very helpful as well. Um, but the skills are meant to, first of all, to um, teach the wellness skills to the clients that come into providers' offices. And then after that, um, if they have a particular traumatic experience, how do they reprocess that? And since it's an embodied sort of intervention, we pay attention to the sensations of the body that may be connected to their well-being, of course, first. And once we know that they can sense um, pleasant and neutral sensations, then we will um, do the what can be very difficult work of reprocessing a traumatic experience. But we do it through the lens of the body. So this, that's really our portal in to, to healing is the body. So we might say to someone, well, I'm wondering if you'd like to share with me um, about what happened to you. And so, but, and as you start to share, what I would like to ask you first is, cause you, could you tell me when you knew that you had survived, that you were going to, to be able to get away from that particular experience? Now that usually is a moment, an existential moment of great relief. And a person might take a deep breath and they'll tell me, oh, I knew I was going to be okay. When I saw my mom, come to get me in the hospital, I can see her face. And I knew then that I was going to be fine. Or I knew that when I got to this particular space and the police came, I was going to be fine. Who knows what someone would say, but that moment of survival tends to be a very important um, moment. And so once a person tells us kind of the end of the story first, and this is a very important, I think, part of trim in that the body knows that it is over. Because as a person's telling us the story, we're asking them, what do they notice on the inside as they remember that survival moment? And uh, honestly, so many times you'll see a person take a deep breath. Sometimes there'll be a little shaking of their hands. Um, they'll, They'll even report maybe tingling and they feel like something's leaving them. So when we've done that, then we, I'll, I can, I'll ask the question, well, what part of the story would you like to tell me now? And then wherever the person starts, we again work with the body because we know that every thought and feeling meanings are connected to sensations in the body that we, we link the cognitions with what's happening within the sensory system. And doing that and also asking about feelings and oftentimes as a person processes their experience in this embodied way, and we use the additional skills that we have in the trauma uh, resiliency model, at the end of the session, people will say the most remarkable things and that have to do with their own embodied healing. So I'm not interpreting their experience. I might say, well, now that you are in this space and you're sensing this at this moment, um, what are there any thoughts, feelings, or meanings about this experience? And people will say things like, oh, well, I really feel it's over now. It's like behind me. Sometimes I'll even move their hand like, oh, it's behind me. And I'll go, well, even notice what it's like for you to move your hand in that way, that it's behind you. And then other times people will just say, I really know that it wasn't my fault. I was just I was just a little boy or a little girl. And I say, well, as you say that out loud, what do you notice happening inside? And people will often take a deep breath. Again, release sensations may happen. And oftentimes they're also can 
often be this um, comment that people will make, well, it's almost like my adult self in a very deep embedded way is embracing that young child that has lived inside of me, letting them know that they're going to be okay. And as they say that, they may even actually bring their hands together in an embrace and I might encourage them to notice what happens on the inside. And many people have shared with me that they feel like all of a sudden, you know, it's almost like it's a, it's a, one of those videos where everybody comes together if they're apart, that they can feel this integration of themselves and not only their cognitions and their thoughts, their feelings, but also the meanings and the sensations that I remember one um, Iraq veteran I worked with that he brought his hands together and he said, oh, oh my, I feel whole for the first time. And so those kinds of comments, Mike, that I know you've seen many times as well in your practice that we see over and over again. So in some ways, for me as a therapist, it has made my life so much easier with the trauma resiliency model, because instead of me ascribing a meaning, oh, I wonder if this happened because this happened to you when you were 10, the person starts unwinding their own narrative of their own life experience from this very um, deep, grounded place that has come from opening up that, that portal of sensation. So, I, I mean, that's one of the reasons I love doing the trauma resiliency model as a therapist and teaching it because we see that over and over again. So go ahead, Mike. I know you have another question. Well, just observation, because I think those are the things you've, you've touched on a number of things. And, and I know in the book, this is the, the first part of the book is really about the foundation, right? And, and what these models are, but two things that you touched on that I think are so important to highlight and emphasize and you, you have is this work, work is, we do this work in a different way. It's not just telling the story. The story is important and, and telling the story can be important, but it's telling it in a different way and, and inviting the person to tell the story in a different way. Because in our culture, in our profession, sometimes we often think about, oh, we have to tell the story from beginning, middle to end. But we know we don't do, and there's specific reasons why. This is a bit of a paradigm shift. I think there's very specific reasons why. I'm wondering if you could speak to even just a little bit as to why we don't necessarily. Well, you know, I think that the thing that's been so, and I, and I mentioned it, um, is that the body has an experience of yeah. whatever happened to us. So if we tell it in a chronological way, oh, I was with so-and-so, and then all of a sudden this happened, and then this happened, we actually can visibly see them start to become more um, upset as their not only mind is recalling, but their body starts to recall. And so that means the body at that moment doesn't know that that trauma is over. That's been my experience. So that's why going to the end of the story first and laying down those pathways of that knowing can make such a huge difference for, for people. And then going back to other elements of the story. But there's another thing that happens is sometimes you ask that question. This happened to me um, just a few months ago. I was doing one of our classes and this young woman, she goes, she couldn't almost speak when I asked the question. And that always gives me a clue that it was foggy. And she really didn't know she had survived. And she says, Elaine, no one's ever asked me that question before. And she had therapy about this, this experience that she had, where she actually almost died in a, in a car accident. And so then when we started to unwrap it, and she started even saying that, well, well, notice what it's like on the inside to not know that you have survived. I mean, that can be a very unsettling experience, but I already knew that I could shift her into more resilient spaces because um, I knew that she could 
resource and ground, which are two of the hallmark wellness skills. But then she finally, and I mean, it was such a sweet moment. And this was on Zoom. I mean, I never knew I could do this work on Zoom. I thought you had to be in person. But she recalled an experience where she was being wheeled out of the hospital and she saw her sister. And it was through her sister's eyes that she knew that she had survived, but she didn't know it until that moment. And it had been many years since this had happened. And I have to say there were tears, not only in her, but in, in, uh, in me. And it was so serendipitous because at that moment, her sister called her. She goes, oh, that's my sister calling. I said, I said, you know, take the call. <laughs> that's a reason. If your sister is calling at that moment, it was such a sweet, sweet thing to see her, you know, understand that. So, you know, you can see if the body doesn't know something's over and how we can suffer so much with post-traumatic stress because we keep reliving that experience in a sensory way because those multi-sensory reminders of the trauma, you know, imagine every time you get in the car, every time you hear a loud noise, all of a sudden your body's having a reaction as if it could be happening in the present in the present moment. So I think that what we do with the trauma resiliency model is so empowering because we can we can ask about the story in a different way, but there's another another piece to it that's so important and that is what if you don't remember? Right. What if the trauma happened when you were a year old? You know something happened to you, your family says you never were the same again. So do, you know, you'll never be able to piece that out because it's not in your narrative memory of that experience, but it is in your body memory. So when a person will come to me and say, well, I know this thing happened to me, but, you know, every time I see a, you know, every time I see, let's say a dog, I start to shake. And, you know, they learn later they were bitten by a dog. I mean, that's could say, oh, that's a simple thing, but that can be a very traumatic thing for a, a little person, right? So, but I can say, well, even though you don't know what happens, as you're telling me about this now, and even recalling what your family has said, what are you noticing happening on the inside? And so I can work with the body memory with the person not having any narrative memory. And what happens when I do that, and I've done this many times in many situations, I can see the shifts in the nervous system as again, the nervous system releases and integrates and comes back together again. I'll say, well, as you think about, you know, what you were sharing with me in the beginning, what do you notice now? Oh, I feel like something's left me. I don't know what happened to me, but for some reason it doesn't seem as important as knowing that my body feels better. And, you know, how many times I've heard that exact statement from people is really, um, is, as again, been humbling. And another thing that, you know, I never get tired and I keep doing this work um, over and over and over and over again. So because seeing that is, is almost like you're seeing someone giving birth to themselves. And how could that not be a wonderful moment, not only to be witness of, but to be a guide. And I really see the trauma resiliency model as a guide. We're less in the expert role as in guiding people to understand more about that sensory experience that was connected to whatever experience they had and also being able to align those thoughts and feelings that um, are much more adaptive in how people go forward. Well, it's it's a very gentle, it's a very respectful approach uh, in working with with someone. Gentle. And not to say, you know, when we say gentle, it doesn't mean it's not hard. Right. Um, and people often say, gosh, I feel like I've just run a marathon and I've just been yeah. sitting in this chair and I go, probably might be a good idea. We've moved energy really through the body, yeah. right? Because they've had release sensations. They've noticed things in their body yeah. that, you know, people tell me they, you know, they, they had a good night's sleep or sometimes they wake up going, oh, I feel different. So, uh, you know, we, and also a, a good 
you know, trim therapists will also keep in close contact with their client after they've, you know, moved through a reprocessing experience if they need to talk again, because again, this new experience in the body is novel. And for some people, even though it's about their well-being, even well-being can be, is it normal not to feel that beating drum on the inside that's been with me since I was 10? It's gone. And it's like, it feels almost empty, but it doesn't feel empty bad. It's just like empty that it's no longer there. And that's really working with the sensory system. And I think that's what makes the trauma resiliency model so powerful. And um, And the community resiliency model. And the community resiliency model, because in another way, we are reprocessing trauma when we help people be able, and I, you know, I'd say with both models, we're helping people discern the difference between sensations of distress and sensations of well-being. So with, with CRIM, which we're not reprocessing a traumatic event, but we are helping people learn about their nervous system in a different way. So mm-hmm. if they always get activated, let's say every time they see a certain relative that was responsible for harming them when they were little, they can say, oh, that's not happening now. And now I'm 30 years old and that person does, you know, they can't, they can't hurt me anymore, but my sensory system still thinks that they can. Yeah. So how can I work with that, with the wellness skills, tracking my nervous system, bringing in one of the other skills so that I can come back into what we call the zone of well-being, the resilient zone. Children call it the okay zone. I always love to say it in Spanish, the zona de bienestar, um, because that's what, you know, we're looking for is that how can we show up as our best selves in our lives? And if we've had trauma and a lot of stress, sometimes we haven't. And that happens to all of us. It happens to me. It happens, I know to you as well, Mike, it's really the common human experience. And I've had a very interesting week with um, our models this week, the last, you know, really two weeks, I've done a, a workshop for people in Iran. I've talked to people in Rwanda. I've talked to people in Australia. I've talked to people in Great Britain and the US. And one of the things- And Ukraine. And Ukraine. (laughs) Oh my gosh, how could I ever forget Ukraine? Mm -hmm. Um, And all of them, when we talk about the nervous system and we talk about the ways we talk about sensations, we are so similar as human beings um, that it just binds me even in stronger ways to help as many people as possible help them understand more about their nervous system and how through very simple skills that they can come back to that experience of well-being. And, you know, I've said before on the show, and I've said it many times during trainings, that little lady in the Philippines that um, said to one of our newly minted CRIM teachers, you know, thank you for reminding me what I had, what I already knew, but had forgotten because we're not teaching people about something they already or don't already know, we're kind of an awakening a consciousness and intentionality about helping to come back into that zone of well-being. And that is an exciting thing to do. It is. And, and it's an embodied thing to do. And I think that was the second thing that I wanted to highlight that you had said earlier, and, and, and we've said throughout, and you've said throughout, is that what another paradigm shift for me is how embodied this model is and how important we look at uh, how important it is to look at the sensory experience and the body's response. And um, and I know that in our field, that type of uh, work is being done with uh, more regularity, which is great because I know when I first was introduced to the model, that was strange to me as a clinician. Why is she asking about sensations? I don't understand, right? Because that's not something that we were, that I was ever taught 
coming through my training as a clinician. And in our culture, that's not something that we often talk about. You know, we can talk about, you know, if I could walk up to someone and say, hey, how are you feeling today? Yeah, so it's a little odd because I may be a stranger asking that, but they can answer that question without really batting an eyelash. But if I came up and asked, hey, what sensations do you notice right now? That's a little weird. <laughs> that you know? a little weird. Right. Yeah, but we're it, getting more used to it. <laughs> right. Right. But but the importance of bringing in our knowledge about our nervous system and our body and our body's response, it really is, to, in my opinion, when you look at how we, we work with children and infants in particular, how much of their experience is body-based, how much of our experience from our very origins is body-based. And to be able to bring that back into the conversation as we work through uh, the challenges of life and the activities of daily living, I think is such a valuable tool. And I think that's where, why I think this book is so important is it, it doesn't only invite that conversation and outline how important this is uh, just for clinicians. It outlines that for everybody. Anybody can pick up this book and, and read it and understand why this, these skills can be so effective. And then again, to be able to read then subsequent chapters on how these skills have been used in various uh, other ways uh, throughout the world. Well, and I think that that's where, you know, the community resiliency model and speaking a little bit more towards that, that model. And, you know, when you think about that, we know that there's children, you know, someone sent me a video of a three-year-old teaching her one and a half year old brother, how one of the help now strategies when he was out of his zone in this high zone. And I mean, when you think about that, that's a skill that that little three and three-year-old is going to have for the rest of her life, as well as her little brother. But also we have seen with children that children really glob on to learning how to track their, their nervous system and how to pay attention to sensations of well-being. And when they do that, it's so empowering for them. And I think, gosh, you know, you know, some people call this body literacy when we learn about sensations. I like that term. Um, but when we have body literacy, you know, it's an important thing that we can read and write. It's an important thing that we can read our nervous system and be able to tell that difference between sensations of distress and well-being. And if we are distressed, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to stay distressed or can we maybe use some skills so that we can release that sensation that may be connected to our distress so that we can show up as our best self. And I know that when we meet again on um, Mike and I are going to have a second part of the show on the 13th um, of March, where you'll be talking about the neuroscience of why that is. But we see little people being little neuroscience masters, and they don't necessarily can't necessarily communicate about why it's happening, but they are doing this little intervention for themselves that are bringing back bringing them back into that zone of well-being, the okay zone, as we call it. <laughs> the okay zone, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I know uh, as we are nearing the end, we're not quite there yet, but as we're nearing the end, I wonder, Elaine, if it would be helpful for me to just read a brief description of the book yeah, so why don't you, people why don't know you what the book's read. about. And then, yeah, so Mike, what's, my, what's the book about? Well, what you, is your book about? You, you know, there's that chapter, too, that you're really responsible for. Thank you for asking me. I, I would be glad to tell you what the book's about. So the, the, the book, you know, a brief description uh, reads this way, during and after a traumatic experience, survivors experience a cascade of physical, emotional, cognitive, behavioral, relational, and spiritual responses that can make them feel unbalanced and threatened. The second edition of Building Resilience to Trauma explains common responses from a biological perspective, reframing 
the human experience from one of shame and pathology to one of hope and biology. Using two evidence-informed models of intervention that are trauma-informed and resiliency-informed, the Community Resiliency Model, CRM or CREM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, TRM or TREM, chapters distill complex neuroscience into understandable concepts and lay out a path for fostering short and long-term healing. So CREM, CRM, develops natural leaders who share wellness skills throughout communities as primary prevention, and TREM, TRM, focuses on training mental health professionals to reprocess traumatic experiences. Studies have demonstrated the models use lead that the model's use leads to significant reductions in depression and anxiety, and both models also lead to increased increases in well-being. The models restore balance after traumatic experiences and can be used as tools to cultivate well-being across cultures and abilities throughout the lifespan. Program co-sponsors have included the United Nations, Emory University Center for Contemplative Science and Compassion-Based Ethics, the Victims and Survivals, Survivors Network of Northern Ireland, PACE's Connection, the International Transformational Resilience Coalition, the Adventist Disaster Relief Agency International, Wake County School System, and the State of Washington Police Commission. And of course, I know personally that that is just a very small <laughs> very sampling, small sampling. Of, <laughs> of various organizations that, that utilize our, the, these models. Well, and I think that the other thing that, that, you know, we've done is, you know, we've done a lot. And I guess that's the other thing about why writing the second edition, we've done a lot through the Trauma Resource Institute, but our partners have done amazing work. And when we hear from our partners, and I think that was another reason to write the second edition, I wanted people to know what others had done. And and, and integrated within the book are a lot of examples. Like there's examples from the Wake County School. I mean, one of my favorite people on the globe is Edwin Weaver from Fighting Back Santa Maria. And he is really, he's integrated the community resiliency model in so many different ways within Northern Santa Barbara County, including now there's gonna be a mediator who knows the crim skills um, in the juvenile hall and how that might change some of the lives of young people who have um, have done things that have caused them to be incarcerated, but they're young. What if we could help them learn wellness skills? What if they could learn how to kind of recalibrate their nervous system to be in a, a zone of well-being so that whatever got them into jail is not gonna continue to be the legacy of their lives. And there's another project starting um, with a juvenile justice system um, in, Georgia. And um, one of our leading researchers, um, well, Doug Jackson and Lindy Grabby are a part of that. Um, in, and, and I know that we're going to be seeing an Ingrid Duva. Uh, I know that we're going to be seeing some really important um, work from there um, and how that might change lives. Because, you know, ultimately what we want, I mean, it's so simple, really, isn't it? We want a, we want a better world. Yeah. We want people to not suffer as much. We want people to come together with respect of one another. Um, you know, we have great diversity, which I think is part of the richness of who we are as human beings. Um, but we also have great similarities. And I think um, if we sometimes could focus on how similar we are, that maybe we would hurt each other so much. I mean, what I think all the places in the world that I've traveled, and I've traveled to many countries, I've seen people, they, we want the same things. We want our children to be safe and thrive. We want to take care of our elders. Uh, we want to have meaning and purpose. And I think that's something I've seen over and over again is when we cultivate this well-being, people tend to have a direction 
to what that meaning and purpose may be for their lives, which I think ultimately um, brings us as, you know, as guides to these two models and the work that we've done around the world. Um, it brings us to really sacred and sometimes joyous moments, even during the very worst of times, being with people. And I think that's what the book is about. The book is about hope. Um, in the very beginning, the very beginning of both books, I, I used the same in both books, was the story of Elpis, whose daughter Pandora, it was a jar. She opened the jar when she was supposed to leave. She was not supposed to, but she did anyway. She was curious, as many of us are in the world. And all the suffering in the world was released from the jar. But in the very bottom, right, was um, hope. And hope um, is has been there. That story is an ancient story. And I think I can unequivocally say that every place we've gone, as much as we've been, we've seen suffering and despair and grief, We've also seen this amazing capacity of humans uh, to be um, hopeful and to lead with compassion and ethics. And I see that we're very close to being done, Mike. We only have a couple minutes left. So is there anything more that you want to say before we leave this discussion today? Because this, again, is part one of two parts. Of course. I think based on that story, I think that story's emblematic of what I see in our in our world and in our culture in general. When I hear about the story of Pandora's box, we talk about that, we reference that story often in, in line in in reference to all of the ills, all of the horrible horribleness that was released. I never knew. I never knew that hope was at the bottom. That's not talked about. And so what I love about that is I think it's emblematic of why I think this book is so important, why what these models represent are so important is that we acknowledge the distress, we acknowledge those ills, we acknowledge the individual and collective suffering that we all experience, but we also pull in the what else is also true. We also pull in the hope. We don't forget that side of it, that part of life as well. And I think sometimes, uh, at least in my own profession, uh, we have a tendency to to focus much more so on the distress uh, at the cost of what is going right also. Well, and I and I think that's why, you know, that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to remind people the name of the book is Building Resilience to Trauma, the Trauma and Community Resiliency Models. You can get a pre-order at Rutledge.com, which is the pu publisher. That's R-O-U-T-L-E-D-G-E. -E. I think I spelled that yep. right. Um, I, I noticed that on Amazon today that it's my old book is coming up, so it's not the new edition. So just make sure that you, if you go to Amazon, I know that it will be up on Amazon as well, but it, it's the 2023 edition. But as we end today too, I also want to do a shout out to Robert Cellino, who is the person who called me from Voice America, who heard about our work and asked me to do the show. So Robert, thank you. And remember everyone, what else is true in your life? that there is hope even when we're faced with really hard, difficult situations. So, and, and Michael Sapp, again, my dear friend, my, my son with another mother, thank you so <laughs> much for being here and, and uh, interviewing me today. And I look forward to having more of a discussion on the 13th about the book and about your contribution to it. So until we begin, this is Elaine Miller-Karras signing off for Resiliency Within, and remember what else is true.
Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karras, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller-Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com.